a reminder that this is the word of God. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of rivalry and envy, but others of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, everybody. Can I add my welcome to Sean's? It's great to see you. If you're new, my name is Grant, and I'd love to meet you afterwards uh, over a Bourvoss roll or a cupcake or a second-hand item of clothing. Uh, uh, 
We are launching something new today that hasn't been done in this church um, for a very long time, I believe, and that is um, Gift Month. So is the slide up? Can we have the slide for Gift Month? Thank you. Um, what is Gift Month? Gift Month is an opportunity for those who consider this church to be their home to give an extraordinary monetary gift over and above your regular giving, just to acknowledge what the Lord has done in your life through the ministries that you have benefited from here. We'll, we'll do this every year. It'll start the first Sunday of every November. And it's a bit of a misnomer to call it Gift Month. Um, what we are asking for, actually, is we're asking you as the members of this church to give us the amount of 200,000 rand over and above our regular giving. So that is a, a 13th month in the year. And uh, that's the target is 200,000. And we want to give you three months actually to pay that off. So it'll only close the last Sunday in January. So it's probably better to call it gift quarter, I guess. But we're going to stick with gift month. And um, hopefully uh, some of you will be able to make use of any bonuses or 13th checks that you get at the end of the year. We want to raise that money for three purposes. 30% of it will be given to a ministry that is less fortunate than us. And we'll tell you more about that in due course, but there is a new church plant uh, that is um, beginning to take shape at the beginning of next year in Klapmitz, which is right on our doorstep. And um, one of our churches is planting that church, and they've asked us to partner with them. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could give them 30% of 200,000 Rand to set up for setup costs and to start running next year? We've already got six couples who live there who are going to help us and be part of the core group of that church plant. And so it would be a great thing if we could enter into a long-term relationship with that church and help them reach people in Klapmitz for Jesus. 10% of all that is given will be given to our relief fund, which goes towards helping those who are struggling financially within our own congregation. That fund has been quite active this year. It happens behind the scenes, privately and anonymously, and there is a committee that oversees that fund uh, and that distributes that money. And so it's wonderful to be able to top that up uh, with our gift month every year. And then 60% will be used for unexpected capital expenditure and costs at home here at Christchurch Stellenbosch. And so will you, will you consider, will you go home and talk to your family and consider giving a 13th tithe for the year and, and take three months to pay it off if that's helpful uh, or make use of uh, extraordinary money that you might receive at this time of the year. But let's, um, as a church, let's stand together, let's be sacrificial and generous and uh, let's try and give as the Lord enables us to do so. It's very important, of course, that if you do this and you give electronically, that it is clearly marked for gift month. So please will you help us with that, otherwise we won't know where to designate it. And so our treasurer would be greatly helped if you could mark it clearly. Why don't we um, pray and ask the Lord to help us now as we look at his word. Father, all good gifts come from you. You are the giver of life, the sustainer of life, 
And so we bow before you with gratitude in our hearts for all that you've done for us in Christ and all that you've given us to keep us going. Lord, would you help us as a church to be a generous church? Help us to give with joy in our hearts, cheerfully, remembering that you gave to us without holding back. Lord, we thank you not only for the material things that you give us, for the way in which you provide for us financially, but we thank you for your word which keeps us alive. We pray that we would have that attitude now as we come to Philippians chapter 1. Would you help us to have open hearts and minds, undistracted, to hear what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, I don't need to convince you that we are a complex nation, perhaps in a way that other nations aren't. I don't, I don't know of other nations that are as complex as ours. We've got all kinds of parallel systems that run. There's the formal economy and the informal economy. Um, there are people who are pre-modern, people who are modern, people who are post-modern, all in one country. We even have two political systems that run in this country. We have um, a constitutional democracy that we're all very grateful for, but we also have millions of people who live under the rule of a monarch in our country. Last Saturday in Durban, King Misu Zulu was confirmed the king of the Zulus after a year-long family struggle. He rules over 15 million people in our country. That's his claim. The ceremony took place in front of tens of thousands of his subjects at the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban last Saturday. Did you know there are eight monarchs in our country that are recognized and that are each earning 1.2 million rand a year from the government, from your taxes and mine? and they represent the vast majority of South Africans. So we are complex. People who are governed by monarchs or by military dictators are not citizens, they are subjects. But if you live in a constitutional democracy, you are a citizen. And so we have many South Africans who live both as subjects but also as citizens in one country. Citizenship is something that perhaps those of us who don't live under a monarchy or view ourselves as being part of a monarchy, we take it for granted. It's, it's a function of democracy. Uh, perhaps for, for many of us, we've not really known anything different. In the ancient world, citizenship, however, was viewed differently to the way we view it. The modern view of citizenship is that as citizens, we've got rights and we've got entitlements and we've got protections. And that's what's so good about living in a constitutional democracy. But in the ancient world, citizenship was less passive. It meant something more than that. It was viewed not in terms of civic rights, but in terms of civic duties to the state. In the Roman Empire, citizenship was limited, and therefore it was a great privilege. It wasn't just conferred on everybody. It was limited, and so it was something to be valued and prized and aspired to. It emphasized political participation. Citizens were legally obliged to do national service, not in the military, but in the parliament, as well as in the military, in public office, and they sacrificed part of their private lives 
to do so. I guess a modern examples of this might be um, jury duty in America. It's part of being a citizen in America. You've got to do your civic duty uh, on the jury or military service in Israel or Taiwan. Um, or perhaps compulsory voting in Australia. Uh, you can get fined thousands of Australian dollars if you don't vote. Citizenship in the ancient world was everything. It was their lives, it was their duties, it was their identity, it was their honor, it was all wrapped up in their belonging to a particular city and becoming citizens of that city. It, all that gave life meaning was wrapped up in citizenship a sense of standing together for a common cause, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose as they locked arms together and moved forward for a common cause. And so Paul picks up that picture of citizenship in the book of Philippians and applies it to the Christian church. Um, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 27, it's a little bit obscured, obscured in the NIV translation, but look at what it says. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct there is the Greek word politumai, which, from which we get politics, and it's the word for citizenship. He's saying, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, be a citizen of the gospel of Christ. He mentions it at near the end of the book in chapter 3 and verse 20, and the NIV have translated it correctly in chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul kind of brackets the book of Philippians between the word, these two words, the words uh, citizen. It's about how to be citizens of heaven and how to live here while we wait to be taken to that new city. And so Christians are citizens temporarily traveling in a foreign land, but straining and longing for our home, our city. And so as we wait, what will be important to us? How will we use our time? How will we use our resources? What priorities will we have? What choices will we make for ourselves and for our families and for our children? And will there, is there evidence in our lives as we wait that we know that this world is not where our citizenship resides? And so that is what the book of, one, of Philippians is about. And in Philippians 1, Paul is going to set himself up as an example of how to live as, as a citizen of heaven, waiting to be repatriated to his real home. And I long that we as a church will together as one unite ourselves for this great purpose that God has for us and for the world, that our families will come second to this, that our leisure will come second to this, that our resources will be liberated for this, and that our lives will be orbited around this. And when that happens, Stellenbosch will change. People will change. You will change, and I will change. 
Now, it's a letter from Paul and his gospel partner, Timothy, verse 1 tells us. But it is a letter for all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi and at Stellenbosch. And so I want you to see three practical ways that Paul gives us to live here and now in such a way that we demonstrate by our lives that we are citizens of heaven. You ready? First one, gospel partnership. Verses 3 to 8. Let's commit to relationships that are marked by gospel partnership. Verses 3 to 8. Paul is full of thanksgiving. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Do you know what's surprising about those verses? Is that as he writes those verses, where is he? Verse 7 tells us he's in jail. And yet his heart is full of joy. It seems to me to be a contradiction. How can you be in prison, incarcerated, and yet full of thanks and joy? The source of his joy, though, is verse 5, the partnership in the gospel with the Philippians. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am full of joy and thanksgiving. That's an interesting thing. So his joy, the source of his joy, is partnership with other Christians. I wonder if that is a source of your joy. Being here with other Christians. You know, church is full of people that you wouldn't naturally tend towards necessarily because we're all so different from each other. With different interests, different hobbies, different personalities. We're good as South Africans, aren't we, as temporarily pulling together for a common cause. But as soon as Ireland win, we lose lose interest. Isn't that true? (laughs) We're all on the edge of our seats watching the game last night, sort of feeling like we're in partnership with the rest of the country, and then they lose and we go switch off and we get grumpy about it, and that's the end of our partnership. But that's not the case with Christians. We've got a bigger cause that we are in partnership with, a longer-lasting cause than a rugby game. And so the heart of partnership in the gospel is self-sacrificial conformity to a shared vision. That's what Christian citizenship looks like. And so Paul wants to build indestructible teams to work together for that single cause. Part of the same unit in active service, united and striving as we stand together in the gospel. doesn't matter that you wouldn't necessarily have me around or naturally socialize with somebody like me. It doesn't matter. We are united by virtue of the fact that we are both citizens and we share a common cause. It's a very different view to how many people view church this morning, maybe even here today. Many people, when they come to church, think in terms of rights, entitlements, and privileges. What am I going to get? I wonder if the music is going to be good, or if my children are going to be happy. But that's not real citizenship in heaven. We can't be consumers or individualists. We come together as a team bearing the load in partnership. Notice that Paul has got real confidence in verse 6, gospel confidence, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm so grateful for that verse because it reminds me that we are all a work in progress. It reminds me that nobody is required to be perfect 
The Christian life and Christian citizenship is not about perfection, it's about progress. God has begun something in us. We're all at different stages. God works individually with each of us. And so we can put up with each other as a result of that. We can be non-perfectionists as a result of that. In our relationships with each other, let's acknowledge that we are all works in progress. So we need lots of grace with each other, don't we? We need lots of understanding. I will stand on your toes. I don't mean to do it. I'm sorry that I, that I stand on your toes, but please will you put up with that for the sake of our partnership in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great confidence that the Lord will one day bring us to perfection. It's not today. Don't expect this to be a perfect group of people because you will be utterly disappointed. No, the glue that holds us together is verse 7. Did you notice verse 7? It is right for me to feel this way about you all, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We are together not because we are perfect or because we have all the answers or we, we've arrived, but because we are all shareholders of grace. That is the one thing that puts us on the same team together is that none of us deserve to be here. What makes it possible for there to be a church made up of people from such vastly different backgrounds, ethnically and culturally and linguistically and educationally and economically? The answer is grace. None of us deserve it. The members of the church in Philippi, according to Acts chapter 16, included a businesswoman who was wealthy called Lydia. It included a retired soldier who was a jailer for the Roman Empire and a slave girl who had formerly been possessed by a demon. People from lots of different backgrounds in the church because they were shareholders of grace. Friends, because Jesus emptied himself and served us and humbled himself to die even on a cross, he offers forgiveness for free. And anybody who takes hold of that forgiveness becomes a citizen and a shareholder of grace. It doesn't matter what their background, it doesn't matter how rich or poor, what their color, culture, ethnicity, language, it doesn't matter what, what any of those things are. The thing that holds us together in partnership is the grace of God. We are citizens of the same city, striving for a common cause. Will we order our relationships around the gospel of grace? Here's the second thing that Paul models for us in verses 9 to 11, and that is gospel prayers. Let's commit to prayers marked by gospel priorities. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I'd love you to have a go at this in your growth groups in greater detail this week uh, in these verses, verses 9 to 11. But let me make a few comments about what Paul says. But first of all, let me read it again for us. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you know, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that I often only pray about what I want. Is that you as well? Please, please don't leave me hanging here. 
I'm sure that that's all of us. We only pray about the things that we worry about and that we want. That's often the case, and I would confess to you that that's probably 90% of my prayers. And if we're honest, very often our prayers are quite selfish, aren't they? Paul models for us somebody who has put the gospel back into his praying. First of all, his prayers are other person-centered. He's praying for them, for his gospel partners. He prays for their love in verse 9 that it may abound more and more. He's praying for progress in their love for one another and that their love will be a love that is directed by both knowledge and insight. The word for insight is the word for discernment. That they will love and that they will love in a knowledgeable way, in a way and also in a way that is discerning. And what he's saying is he's saying that Love is informed both by intellectual insight, knowledge, but also by moral insight, discernment. So that our prayers are full of love that, are inf that is informed and that is moral. That's what gospel praying is. Knowing God is not less than academic. We've got to know certain things in order to understand the gospel there is knowledge that is needed but it's much more than that there is a moral element that brings about discernment and insight discern discerning what is best is what he prays for them that is a gospel centered prayer isn't it if you're going to live with your life orbiting around the gospel then you need help to know what choices to make what decisions to make what priorities to have what goals to aim at that's discernment. And in verse 10, he prays that there will be fruit in their lives. Fruits of righteousness, he calls it in verse 10. Don't you want your lives to be marked by gospel fruit? Why don't you pray for it? You know, it is possible for you to be a real Christian, but to live a fruitless life. But I think that deep down, those of us who love Jesus and who are grateful for all that he's done for us we do want to live lives of fruitfulness towards God pray for it pray for gospel fruit in your life when last have you prayed for gospel fruit in your life or in the lives of other Christians that you know and that you love and that you're in fellowship with when last have you prayed for gospel fruit in the lives of your children interesting I normally pray for protection for provision for future husbands for my girls I don't know when last up until this week I've prayed that their lives will bear gospel fruit it's a good thing to pray for your children for that's the most important thing let's put the gospel back into our relationships gospel partners let's put the gospel back into our prayers gospel prayers thirdly gospel passion let's commit to lives passionate about gospel advancement that's what Paul models for us in verses 12 to 26 in verse I love verse 12 look at what it says and 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 following he says I want to I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel my imprisonment has been good for the gospel is what he's saying as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Can you imagine being one of Paul's prison guards? Poor guy. 
I mean, he would have just been preached to 24-7, wouldn't he? He wouldn't have stood a chance. He'd have to become a Christian. And we know that that happened on occasion in the book of Acts. He's happy that his imprisonment has led to the advancement of the gospel because the gospel being advanced is more important than his own personal freedom. They keep sending me guards. I'm glad. I just keep gospeling them and they keep, they keep coming Christians. More people are speaking the gospel because I've been imprisoned. That is a good thing. He's, even his opponents in verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains, but I don't care what does it matter. As long as Christ is preached, let them carry on slandering me as long as they also preach Christ. What a heart. I don't think I'd be thinking these thoughts in, if I was imprisoned about my opponents who probably had a hand actually in putting me in jail. As long as they preach Christ, I'm happy to be incarcerated. As long as Christ is preached, that's all that matters. Is that, I wonder if that reflects us in our heart. I've been so confronted by this this week. This is so edgy. I love Paul's passion. He knows that, uh, you know, legally he's Caesar's prisoner, but he's in his own view in verse 16, he's actually Christ's prisoner. He says, I am here for the defense of the gospel. I'm here, Caesar thinks that he put me in jail, but actually Jesus has put me here to defend the gospel. And I'm glad to be here, because at least the guards are being evangelized. Look at his courage, verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It takes courage to be imprisoned for Jesus, doesn't it? Much more courage than it takes for us to invite a neighbor or to speak to a family friend or to tell people what we did yesterday when they ask us on Monday morning, what did you do on the weekend? And so he's got this wonderful courage for the gospel. I wish that I could be as courageous as Paul, unashamed to stand together with this group of believers for the great cause of the gospel. Even if it means that we must suffer or die, doesn't matter, says Paul. Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It might be the best known verse in the whole of Philippians. Verse 21. Do you know what it literally, it literally is written like this in the original language? It says, for me, life is Christ. You know, we are used to that being put the other way around. Because the Bible does it often. The Bible says, Christ is life. And that's true. You can get that all over John's Gospel. But here Paul inverts that and he says, life is Christ. This is a very confronting verse. I hope it's not so familiar that it washes over as we've actually stopped listening to it. Imagine if we went into Akerstadt Mall this, after the service this morning with clipboards and we asked the people who were there, finish the sentence. Life is, what would you get? Family, sport, career, status, name, money. 
We'd get all sorts of answers to that, wouldn't we? If somebody observed you for a week and they were asked to say of your life, finish the sentence, for grant, life is... Can you feel the heat, friends? This is a challenge to all of us, isn't it? Life is Christ for Paul. Whether he's free or whether he's imprisoned. Whether he's rich or whether he's poor. Whether he likes the people at church or whether he doesn't. Life is Christ, not my own comforts. Not even my own family. That is a challenge. You know, I love how unbalanced Paul's life is. You know, the balanced life is an idol in our culture. You must have a balanced life, a bit of sport, a bit of Jesus, a bit of work, a bit of family. For Paul, he lives an unbalanced life. Life is Christ. I remember encountering this attitude in a Christian that I met in Zimbabwe years ago. I don't know, I might already have told the story, I can't remember. But I'll tell it again, it's worth hearing. In 2008, I, um, I went on a mission to Zim and stayed with a farmer who had recently been expropriated, a wonderful believer. He's got, he had four children under the age of 12, and he had lost his ostrich farm, and he was living in a, in, on a friend's property, and we stayed with him. And we were chatting one night over a braai, and I said to him, how do you, why, why haven't you left? Why, how do you cope with, with what's going on in this country? And he, he said this to me, and I'll never forget it, it's had an indelible impact on my life. He said, my wife and I take the view that if things get worse, at least we've got death to look forward to. That's Philippians 1.21, isn't it? For me to live is Christ, life is Christ, but if I die, I'll be with Christ, and that'll be better. But until I wait for that, I'm going to go all out for Christ. Forget about balance. Let's live for Christ. How do you threaten a man who has that view of life? What can the guards in prison say to him to make him frightened? We'll kill you if you don't. Please go ahead. Uh, that would be preferable. You can't frighten a man like that, can you? Who is so sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. What a rebuke this is to my own lukewarmness and mediocrity. Imagine if we were all like this in this church. Imagine what would happen. May God be gracious to us. Fellow citizens of heaven, there is no bigger purpose than the gospel. Do you believe that? There is no bigger purpose than the gospel. It might be that you don't believe the gospel and you're here this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. Your life will only have meaning when you accept the gospel. That is, when you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and have him as your Lord. And live for his purpose. Your purpose will come and go. It won't last. You won't, you won't actually leave a legacy that lasts. Maybe, maybe two or three generations at most. And then what? No one will remember you. I don't even remember my great-grandparents. I met them once, I think. That's going to be the same for me. It's not going to last. 
but the gospel will last. And so I want to encourage all of us to buy into that great vision, to see ourselves as citizens of that great city that is coming, and to live, and if necessary, to die for that great cause, harnessing all of our resources for it, and all of our passion steered into that great cause. A recent survey found that 85 to 90% of Christians who are living in gospel-preaching churches have no intention of ever inviting anyone to church. That is an, if it's true, that is an astonishing uh, metric, isn't it? There's no intention of inviting any non-Christians. And the reason that is given is because they're scared of rejection. Scared of, what would Paul say to that? Man up. Grow up. Scared of rejection, for goodness sake. For me to live is Christ, but it'll be better to die. What's the worst that your neighbor can do to you? Say no. Hurt your feelings. Let's stand firm together. Verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm, striving together for one cause. Don't be frightened, verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Expect to suffer, verse 29. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. Expect it. Receive it. Put up with it because you belong to another city. Now will you bow with me as we pray. Father, these are very confronting words for us this morning, and we confess that we, that we perhaps have become soft. Perhaps we've lost that initial zeal that once we had, that courage, that excitement, that self-forgetfulness that propelled us to advance the gospel, even if it cost us. Forgive us for our apathy, we pray for our mediocrity. Thank you that we are works in progress, that you're still busy with us and that you won't leave us alone. And we pray that we would live in such a way that those who see us will see that our lives are Christ and his great cause. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together as we end our time. And the song is...